Hey, good morning. Welcome to New Life Community Church. My name is Andrew, and I am delighted to be able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Man, if you're glad to be here, will you just let me know it? Will you just say, yeah, I'm all right. I'm... Thanks. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't the only one that was happy about it this morning. That's good. That's good. Man, it is good to be in the house of God. It is good to be able to worship and uh, I really appreciate what Gordon did on that last song. Uh, sometimes people start to think that we have this impression of ourselves that if we're Christians, we're doing church right, then we're going to be perfect. And Gordon was trying to let you know that this is a place for imperfect people. And a lot of planning went into that moment, a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of intentionality. And I appreciate it. Sometimes we need those pictures to feel like, you know what? At the other church, man, they had everything going. I'm not sure I belong. And you look at us and you're like, yeah, I'm at least this good. No, no, I'm, I'm, it's good. But what we're doing is bringing something before God and we gather here to praise him. We gather here to worship God because he's worthy of it, because we understand what it is to experience the goodness and faithfulness of God. And it evokes something in us that says, I have to respond. That's what worship is. And we gather here to listen to the word of God because we understand I need to change. I need to grow. I need to be different. And so that's why we go through these things that we call sermons. And even Paul in first Corinthians one was like, man, even through the foolishness of preaching, maybe some will be saved. And so the point is not the preacher. The point is the word of God. And this is what we need to hear. So I want you to know that this is stuff that's that's still working on me and still forming me and still transforming me. So even though I'm holding the microphone right now, I'm really better off kind of on the other side of this thing sitting here with you guys like, God, what are you going to speak into my life? So we're still listening and growing together. And I want you to know this is a really powerful book. For those of you who have been reading through, I hope that you'll go back. Don't just listen to the sermon, but read through the book of Colossians. It's a short book. It's 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 brief. It's a it's a short letter that's written to this church that Paul's never been to. But man, it is potent. I know of no other book that's so focused on the centrality of Christ. And so it has such great value to us. Here we are, you know, a couple thousand years later, still trying to figure out what does it look like to be a Christian? And I don't think we can get around this. You can't be a Christian unless right. You're following Jesus. And so this whole focus of like whatever else it means, however we contextualize, whatever it means to be a Christian in America in 2020, and we kind of have all these things, it at least means that Jesus is in front of us and we're trying to do the things we see him doing and we're trying to follow in the places where we see him going. That's really what's at the heart of it. And so everything that's come up to this point has really served as kind of an introduction. Paul's told us in the first chapter and said, hey, listen, I'm praying for you guys and excited about what God is doing. I haven't been there before, but I've been hearing great things. And the things I hear about you is that your faith is strong and your love is potent. And he begins to tell him, he says, hey, listen, let's just understand that we're together and we're family and we're we're in this thing together because you're following Jesus and so am I. And so let's reflect on that. And so everything has kind of been this thing of acknowledging their commonality in Jesus. And it's been an introduction leading up to the rest of the letter and kind of the transition point happens in verse six. So if you have your copy of God's word, go ahead and open up now. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. And if you don't own one, you can take that home with you. We want to make sure you're equipped to have the word of God. For those of you with smartphones or iPads, I don't know what you brought with you, but you can pull it up on your phone. That's okay. It's good to follow along. I want you to see the text for yourself. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, this is kind of, um, kind of the key verse of the whole letter. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, just as you received him, just as you had in one moment a salvation experience that changed your reality forever, just as at one point in time you were a sinner and then you got saved, just as at one point in time you were an enemy of God and then you came into the family of God, just like that happened one time and you placed faith one time, guess what? Continue in it. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And so he's saying you heard something, you responded to something, you've been saved. Many of you, you came in here and, and man, you, you got saved so long ago. 
right? That it feels like you've been a Christian longer than you haven't. Some of you, you got saved more recently, but most of us can point to a moment where we said, man, I considered Jesus. I was thinking about Jesus. And at one point in time, and I still remember what it was for me, I said, Jesus, wherever you want to go, I want to go there. Whatever you want to do with me, I'm in. I'm for it. Jesus, I want to follow you. Be the Lord of my life. And from that point on, kind of everything in your life was different. We call this a salvation experience. But some people have kind of wrongly thought about this thing and said it's like fire insurance. Like, I'm saved, so now I'm not going to hell. And that's good enough. I had my salvation moment. Well, Paul is saying, no, 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 it's not about a moment. He says, what you knew once, continue in. Somebody say, continue in it. Keep going. In fact, keep going and live your lives in Christ, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. This is the stuff that springs out of the life that is attached closely to Jesus. This is also why it's so helpful and valuable. Today, I'm wearing my kind of orange, faded orange shirt um, because we're doing our, our small group launch today. And this is our small group color and our small group shirt, in case you're wondering, man, he's really going T-shirts now. Um, But the whole focus is we want to be people who are rooted and built up in Christ, strengthened in the faith. And that's something that we have to be intentional at, something that we do more than just kind of coming to church on Sunday. We want you to be plugged into a group where you know other people, where people can be face to face with you and can talk to you and understand your burdens and help carry them and pray for you and love you and wrestle with you. People who can hear you and and rejoice in your victories and celebrate the things that God's doing in your life. And that's going to happen best in a smaller setting. And so we want to invite all of you, take advantage of these small groups, get involved and say, hey, how can I be a part of building kind of a, a closer culture, right? Like I want other people that know my stuff, that can get into my life, that can kind of help me. Some of you are like, man, I'm wrestling and I don't think anybody else knows about it. Let's change that. Okay. Hey, I'm in this struggle and I'm trying to make strides and sometimes it's going well and sometimes it's not, but I don't think anybody is in my cheering corner. Nobody's checking up on me. Let's change that. Okay, and so small groups are designed to empower and encourage you to stay rooted in Christ, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And this one central thing that's going to happen from Colossians 2, 6 through 23, the name of my sermon is simply this, Christ is all we need. Christ is all. He's all we need. That's it. And it sounds simplistic, right? But, but he's all. And I think sometimes we kind of get messed up in this thought that I need more. Like Christ is good and he solves a problem, but, but I need Christ and then I, I need other things. And really the central focus of this is that like, hey, for salvation, for sanctification, for, for contentment, for satisfaction in life, to, to deal with who you are and what you were made to be, Christ really and truly is all you need. And so I want to set it up this way. How many of you are familiar with fishing? Not F fishing, but PH fishing, right? Like, you you know, you get an email or something and somebody says, oh man, your your last payment was declined. You got to update your payment stuff. Click here and give us your credit card information. And we'll we'll thank you for that. That's what kind of phishing is. It's where somebody sets up an elaborate scam to get you to click on it. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. It's a lot like, you know, in the office, Michael Scott, you know, right? I mean, when when the son of the deposed king of Nigeria emails you directly asking for help, you help him. His father ran the freaking country, okay? Like, like some of you are like, oh man, really? Really? Like I got the email and I knew like there was a problem and he said, hey, if you just send us a thousand dollars now, he'll repay you 10 times over $10,000 in your bank account next week. And you're like, man, if he needs help, who am I to say no? People fall for this stuff. And you're like, all right, well, that's never going to be me. But some of it's a lot closer to home, right? Like if you have Netflix, like they get the logos and everything. They switch it over. Hey, payment was declined. We attempted to authorize the MX card you have on file, but we're unable to do so. We're going to try again in 24 to 48 hours. But if you want to go ahead and just update your payment, you can go ahead and do that here. We're, help, we're happy to help you in any way that we can. And so it's got Netflix official logo. It's got all the stuff even from Netflix. 
It's going gonna, it's gonna to look legit, and you're going to say, oh, yeah, I don't want to lose Netflix. I've been binge-watching the show. I'm on season three, and I was hoping to get to se- season seven by this weekend. You know? And so you click on it. You know, and some of you are like, oh, I don't do Netflix, nothing. But they even do it from, like, banks, right? And they say, hey, listen, somebody made a purchase with your credit card in another place, and was that you? If it wasn't, please just let us know. You can respond here. You won't get charged anything, and let's just update this and make sure we can verify it's you. And then they steal your information, and they take advantage of it. And here's the deal. Here's what I want you to get out of this, is that with phishing, literally what they're doing is they're trying to set up a situation where they create a strong need or desire that you feel like, I need that. And they say, what you have is not enough. What you have is not good enough. What you have is not sufficient. What you need can be found with us if you grab onto it now. Take advantage of it. And so in this fishing thing, you feel this urgent need, this desperation to get something, and you reach out, and what actually happens is you lose everything you had before. And this is exactly what's going on in the church in Colossae. This church is, is kind of up against this thing where, where people aren't saying, hey, Jesus isn't real. They're not saying that. They're saying, yeah, Jesus isn't enough. You've got Jesus, but you need these other things. And if you could only have these other things, then all your problems would be taken care of. And there's kind of this push, this dare, right? Like, come and get what you need over here. And, and the understanding is maybe Jesus isn't enough. And this is what they're kind of wrestling with in the church. And Paul's advising him. He says, no, no, don't fall for the fishing scam. Okay? I know the deported son of the king of Nigeria needs help, but it's not real. Don't fall for it. This is literally what he's telling them. Everything you need for salvation is found in Christ alone. Don't get deceived into thinking you need to add to what he has done. And so let's take up the word of God, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. In other words, what you've received from Christ is sufficient. Don't get don't don't buy into the lie. Don't buy into the scam that something else is going to do what Christ could not for in Christ. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Hear this again. He's saying, I want you to understand who and what Jesus is. If you thought something else was stronger, understand there is none stronger than Christ. If you thought someone else was more connected with the creator and the created, there is no one who is more so than Jesus. For in Christ, all the fullness, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus is fully God. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Hear this well. To those of you who are wondering, is Jesus really enough? To those of you who are wondering, man, I've lived a pretty crummy life. Maybe Jesus can't get me clean. He can get me part of the way, but I need something else to fill the gap. No, no, no. Listen, Jesus is the one who brings you to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In other words, there is no one greater than Jesus. There is no one better than Jesus. There is no one stronger than Jesus. And someone might say, oh, yeah, well, Jesus can do some things, but he's he's too busy or incapable or he just can't take care of this. I'll do it. And Paul's saying, no, that's a lie. And then he tells him, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now, this is important because one of the things that he's going to deal with here is, is one, these elemental forces, right, which is the spiritual notions of the day that they're saying kind of like in Hinduism, they believe there's many gods. And if you need to get uh, to have a baby, you pray to the God of fertility. And if you're kind of warring with someone, you pray to the God of war. If you need peace, there's a God for that. And actually, Hindus don't mind praying to Jesus. He's one of many. And some people, they say, hey, all roads lead to God. You know what? What's right for me might not be right for you. And this kind of pluralistic idea that everything is kind of okay and good. And who am I to judge somebody else's religion? And and this kind of thing is going on. And he's saying, no, I want you to understand there is no authority that is greater than Jesus. And he begins to tell them, and this is significant 
Because to the dominant people of God, the way that they understood Yahweh was to understand it through the law and through Judaism. Okay? And so they understood it a certain way. And this is very important. Genesis chapter 17 told them that the covenant that would be made between Israel and between Yahweh would be marked with the sign of circumcision and that this sign would demonstrate that forever they would be the people of God and God would be their God. This is the sign. And now he's saying, guess what? The circumcision that is happening now in Jesus is not one done by physical hands, but it's done by Jesus. And we kind of get to the central thing. And he's saying, you had a sign of circumcision. Now I will give you a new sign. And in verse 12, it talks about this. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith. And the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, this is the same kind of language that's going on in Romans chapter 6. If you're those who like cross-references, this is a good place to draw a line and say, Hey, listen, the sign used to be circumcision. I'm giving you a new sign in a new way. For Israel and how they understood themselves, it was adherence to the law, action-based. Okay? But now something new is happening where Jesus is actually taking on the entirety of the burden. And he's saying, what I want you to do is follow me and identify with me. And this is happening through baptism. Okay. And so this is why it's so significant and so important is he's saying, if you know, don't be fooled. Don't think that you need to add to it. If you have been baptized, then you are attached to the life giving power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. If you have been baptized, you have been identified with Christ in his death and you have put to death the old man, the old way of life, the sinner. It's dead now. And instead, what you've been given in its place is a new life, something that is completely new, completely other than what you have experienced before. Before you said, I can't help but sin. It's all I have. I'm trapped. I'm bound. I can't seem to do anything right. That's who you were. In Christ, you have been set free from the chains of sin and you have been bound to Jesus and covered in his righteousness. This is what he's saying here. And so this this focus, if you're into this sort of thing, there's something that um, is pretty normal in in Hebrew writing and even in Grecian writing is to kind of draw things out in a, a poetic kind of form. And so we're all pretty familiar with parallelism. It's where you say one thing and then you say another thing that's essentially very, very similar. Like God is our defender. He is our strong tower. That's parallelism. Okay. In the Psalms, you see this all over the time, all the time. There's also something that they use, which is called uh, uh, a chiastic structure or chiasm. And what this is, is it's a way of setting things up to demonstrate significance. And it's actually found here starting in verse uh, 9 and 10 and going through the rest of verse 15. And what it does is it starts out with this first point that's talking about how Jesus is the head over every power and authority. Now watch, the structure is going to go A, B, C, B, A. This is the A. So his headship over every power and authority is the first thing. If you go ahead and read down into verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them. So do you see he's referencing it here and then further down the list. Now we're getting closer to the central theme. The second part that he begins to talk about is circumcision, which he's going to revisit again. And all of it is pointing to the centrality, which is this in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That is the central element of this chiastic structure. And we know that it's central, not just because of the way that they have written it, but because we're going to follow this theme throughout really the rest of this chapter. So just watch as we look at the significance of baptism. He revisits again circumcision here. When you were dead in your sins, verse 13, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So circumcision, that's the B. Now we're back to the B on the other side. Uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Pay attention to what God is doing. He made us alive. He forgave us our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them by the cross. And so as he's talking about this, he's saying, what authority would you point to? And somebody could say, well, this person is greater than Jesus. And somebody might even say, and I've heard uh, kind of Satanists say and declare, you know, Satan is, is Jesus' brother, or he's an equal, or he's just as strong, or he's, he's equally successful or powerful, or sometimes even paint pictures in our minds where we have like, uh, I, I, right, you've seen it in cartoons, an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other, and they seem to be kind of equally strong. Or even a picture where Jesus is wrestling with the devil, a figure all in white and a figure all in dark, and they're battling and they seem to be evenly matched. This is nonsense. This is utter nonsense. Listen, the reality of the incredible power of God is to say that Jesus made a mockery of every authority that could exist. Anything that wished that Jesus would be destroyed, any success or victory that the devil claimed and said, look, I have destroyed the son of God. Jesus said, please. You couldn't even keep me in the tomb. The reality of this is the life-giving power of God that is extended to each and every one of us, that as we identify with him in death, so we identify with him in resurrection, and we are filled with the life-giving power of God. And in this process, here's what he does again. He cancels the charge of our legal indebtedness. He forgives us. All the weight of your, th- I mean, think about it. All the sins that you've committed, the ones that people know about and the ones that they don't, the ones you've never talked to anybody about, the ones that you're so ashamed of that it's never come out into the light of day. God saw it. And in Christ, he's declaring you forgiven. He's saying, I don't hold that against you anymore. And you know what? Nobody else can either. And here's the reality. If somebody could say, no, 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 you owe a debt. You have done wrong and you owe a debt. And Jesus is saying, nah, because I kept the receipt. And you know what I did with it? I nailed it to the cross. This is what he's saying. He says, I took the legal document, the charge of everything that you have committed, as though everything you've done, every wicked and evil thing throughout your life was written down on a piece of paper, as though someone studiously kept track of every single time you blew it. Some of you are like, that sounds like my parents. But no, if somebody did this and they wrote it all down, saying Jesus took that list and he said, I'll pay that debt. And he took the receipt and he nailed it to the cross. This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying. The end of verse 14, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Hear that well. He left them in a situation where there was nothing they could do. What he did was completely legal and right and just for God to do. And so nobody else can speak against it and say, no, 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 I was owed a debt. Jesus says, I paid that debt. Nobody can say, no, 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 they, they still owe me. Jesus says, nah, you've been paid in full. You have no authority here. And he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. The tool that should have been one of shame became one of victory. The tool that was used to embarrass the person who had done wrong was used to set free the people who had more to be embarrassed about than anyone. Jesus bore the shame that was meant for you and for me And this incredible thing that he has done needs nothing to be added to it. If you have wondered if Christ is sufficient, he is. If you have wondered if what Jesus has done is enough, it is. If you have thought that you were unique in your capacity to sin in incredible ways, let me tell you, you're not. You and I can compare our lists later. If you really want to, I'll be open about it. I mean, I've messed up a ton. Ask my wife. Ask my kids. They've got some idea. Like, dad's not always great, right? You don't have to laugh at that. You could just be like, oh, cringeworthy. Oh, man, like, really? Yeah, guys, like, I'm not just putting on a show. Like, this is legit. We are sinners. We are people who are messed up. And then Jesus comes to us as broken sinners, and he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to take care of this, and you can't add to it. It's not like, you know what? If you can pick up a little bit, it's not like I'll pay the check. You leave the tip on the table. No, 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 I can't add to it. No good works, no actions. There's no punishment I can place on myself that will say, maybe God will see this and he'll relent. There's some people who literally believe that they have to suffer. They feel like I've done wrong and I need to suffer for my crimes so that God will see it and be pleased. Let me tell you, if you are adding to the gospel of Jesus, you are not pleasing God. 
if you are punishing yourself or someone else for sin and you're saying, no, 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 you haven't done enough yet to settle this debt with God. You are not understanding the gospel correctly. See, lots of people will try to add to the gospel of Jesus. They'll say it's not enough. And even the great accuser, the devil himself, will come and say, you're a lousy piece of garbage. I really love Martin Luther's perspective on this. I love what he says. He says, sometimes the devil will come to me and he will tell me I'm a sinner. And that comforts me greatly because I know Christ died for sinners. And I love that. I'm like, Martin Luther, get it. Come on, man. Like this dude's 500 years in the ground and he's still speaking to my soul. Like there's something in me that says, if you have to be good enough to get to God, I know I'm not. And he's saying, listen, every time when the devil comes at me and he says, you're not good enough, I go, I know, isn't it great that the blood of Jesus is. Everything you need for salvation is found in Christ alone. There's some people who are going to try and add to this. There's some people who are going to say Christ plus this Christ plus that this culture was good at that. They knew how to do this Christ plus this equals salvation. And he say, no, Christ plus nothing equals everything. You cannot add to it. You cannot you cannot pay a little bit, work a little bit. You can't make this stuff better. And so every single thing that we do is a response to Jesus. It is not an act of salvific significance. In other words, I'm responding to the great love of Jesus. I'm not paying off my debt. I'm responding to the great love of God. If when the tithe plate comes around later because the Bible talks about giving joyfully, right? And because we know that like kingdom stuff, it costs money. And so we do that. But if you're thinking like, I'm going to put money in and then God's going to take time off my sentence, Right. This was something that, by the way, the Catholic Church has rejected. But it was one of the things that Martin Luther got mad at the Catholic Church about. All the things that he wanted the Catholic Church to reform over were like messed up stuff that the Catholic Church like them, love them, hate them, whatever you want to say about them. Even they're, they're like, no, that stuff is ridiculous. We'd never do that anymore. And one of the things that they said is that your loved one is in purgatory until you give a certain amount of money. And then once you do they get to go to heaven. This is a wrong mentality, but some of us, we carry it with us today. And so we say, you know what? I'm going to give to the Lord. I'm going to give to the Lord and that's going to buy off some time. I'm going to give to the Lord and I'm going to pay off my debt. I know I've done wrong. And so now I give to the church. That is a wrong understanding. Let me tell you, let me tell you why I give. I mean, this is just it. I mean, part of it's because, you know, the word of God talks about it and it says, hey, this is a good and healthy thing to do. And I think 10% is is way less than everything, which is what God deserves. But but I don't give it out of a feeling of guilt. I don't ever give because I think I'm buying something. I give because I know what God has done in my life. And I want to respond to him in worship. And this is one of the things he said, hey, here's how you can worship me. And so I'm responding. And so don't let this be a guilt trip or a guilt talk. What I'm saying is if you have given for that reason, I would rather you gave nothing than to give believing you are purchasing your salvation. This is not what God is doing. Christ is sufficient. Secondly, everything you need for sanctification is found in Christ alone. Everything you need for salvation is in Jesus. Everything you need for sanctification. In other words, if you said to get out of hell, I understand it's just Jesus. But to become good, I have to add on these things. And so literally, this is what was happening is some people were saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus and he is the one who gives me salvation. But guess what? If I'm really going to be a good person, I need to fulfill the law. And they say, no, you don't need to add to this. You see, all of us had kind of this cultural stuff that was shaped in us. Things that you learned, things that you understood, things that you understood about how you were supposed to be and who you were supposed to be. And then you came to Jesus and you said, now I'm going to go back and I'm going to keep living according to these same sets of rules. And I want you to know if you're following Jesus, Jesus is sufficient to supply your sanctification. You do not need to add to this. This is the same thing that he's telling them because some of them, the Jews are saying, listen, I get it. You follow Jesus now, but you better make sure that you still fulfill all the temple rituals. You better make sure that you're still honoring all the new moon festivals. You better make sure that you're still doing all of these things. And if you're not, you're not really a good person. You're not really righteous. 
And literally what he's saying is, no, 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 my righteousness doesn't come from my actions. My righteousness is imparted by Jesus. It is he who transforms me in his power, not I who earn it by my good works. Once you begin following Jesus, don't go back to your old ways of judging your life and finding significance. He tells us here in verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow. Somebody say a shadow. A shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, all the pictures of the law, all the things that seem so important and so significant, all this stuff that seemed like, man, you got to do this and this is what it is. He's like, yeah, but that's just the shadow of Jesus. And to continue to put ourselves under the law is to pursue the shadow of glory. It's to pursue the shadow of righteousness. It's to pursue the shadow of God. You see, all of those things were meant to indicate that he is coming. They were meant to indicate that there is something better that gives this substance. And even that thing itself is intangible. Paul would even tell us, he says, do you know why the law exists? To help you realize you can't fulfill it. You know why the law exists? To teach you you're a lawbreaker. You know why the law exists? To let you know you need a savior. This is the whole point. The law didn't come to save you from anything. It came to let you know that you had messed up. So if anybody was goofy enough to say, well, I've never sinned. They'd be like, well, here's the law. Have you ever done this? Well, yeah. What about this? Well, yeah. Well, you should have done this. Did you? No. Oh, man, I'm in rough shape here. If God cares about these things, I'm done. Good news. There's Jesus. And so this language here of like, hey, don't get caught up in these things. Don't get lost. Don't let anyone judge you. I kind of got this image. Like, I don't know if you remember back in the heyday of American Idol. We had Simon. I don't remember. Cowell. Yeah, Cowell. Now, I know he's still judging people. So he's not an American Idol, but he's still judging people. But I I, kind of thought it was great TV because you'd have two people that were like, oh, I could really tell you tried hard on that one. And somebody else, it was like, your music touched my soul. And it was quintessentially like grandma being like, you did a good job. And listen, you did not do a good job. And Simon would be like, that was terrible. So that was horrible. And right now, I don't know if I ever want to hear music again. That's just my opinion. Thank you. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And it was sort of refreshing uh, because he said what we were all thinking. And we just didn't expect it. But here's the thing. Some of those people who were singing and then just getting ripped to shreds, they go back and they say, I don't even think I want to sing anymore. Right? Like you get that angry judge, that thing that comes up and you're like, hey, I'm a Christian now and I'm following Jesus. And like, you know, the life you used to live. You go back to your friends. You're like, I'm following Jesus now. And they look at you and they're like, you? (laughs) I don't think so. You say, no, I'm following Jesus now. And they're like, we'll see. Let's see if it lasts. They start looking at you, and maybe you've heard these words before, that somebody came up to you and said, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. And they start judging you, and they're like, man, if that's, if that's what Jesus is, I don't want any part of it, man. Look at you. And you start feeling terrible about yourself, and you're like, man, maybe I shouldn't be. I've literally had people tell me before, you know why I stopped being a Christian? is because I thought I was bringing the church down. Someone told me just the other day, they said, I stopped coming to church because I was afraid that I might draw other people into sin with me. And I said, let me tell you this and be real honest. There is nobody in church who is not a sinner. And I am not afraid of your sin in the presence of the power of Jesus Christ. This place is supposed to be a hospital to help people, not to incubate the healthy. Listen, if you're coming in here and you're like, I'm a mess, and if you knew what I did, please, whatever you did, know this, Jesus loves you. Jesus can redeem you. Jesus can forgive you. And so don't let anybody else judge you out of this thing. Don't let anybody else come and tell you what you ought to be, what you should be, what you're not. Don't let anybody come up to you and say, you know what? If you were really so righteous, so faithful, so good, then you'd look like this. So you might as well give up. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't give up because of that. Don't let somebody else talk you out of your faith. The Jewish concern I got this out of uh, a commentary. 
The Jewish concern over special days grows out of the Old Testament. Certain religious days were to be observed, feasts, Leviticus 23, new moons, Numbers 10, 10, and 28, 11, and Sabbaths, Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, 31, 14 through 16. These occasions were more than legal requirements found in an ancient document. They helped establish a national and ethnic consciousness that represented all that was distinctively Jewish. I want you to let that sink in because some of the people he's talking to were distinctively Jewish their whole lives and taught, if you want to please God, you have to be a good Jew. And there's some of you who have understood your identity alongside of your nationality or your family name, and somebody told you, this is who you need to be. And some of those things, they have nothing to do with Jesus. I don't know if you grew up in a home like I did where they said, don't ever start a fight. But if anyone ever starts one with you, you finish it. Right? So if you're getting picked on and you don't fight back, you're not a real man. Right? Like if you want to be, if you want to be good, listen, listen. If you really want to love somebody, sometimes you got to know how to let them go. And we're like, man, I don't need that nonsense in my life. You know, what kind of person are you to put up with this kind of stuff? I'm mentoring a guy and I talked to him and, and he struggled. He struggled with his wife at some point. His mom said, you know what? I, th- I think you just need to get away from that. You need to leave her. And he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm not going to do that. So his whole family right now is kind of fighting with him and giving him a hard time. And he's like, you know what? I know the way of God is right, and I don't regret a thing. But there's going to be times in our lives, aren't there, where there's going to be pressure from people we care about, pressure from our family, pressure from the identity we thought we were supposed to have, pressure from all sorts of things that stand outside of us that say, if you're really going to be this kind of person, then this is what you need to do, and it's going to hold it up to you. You're going to feel like you fall short of it. And the question has to be, am I following Jesus or not? There's going to be times in your life when you know the right thing to do in following Jesus and you're worried and, and kind of like, what will other people think of me if I do this thing? What will other people think of me if I, if I don't do what's expected? If I live outside of the norm, what will that look like? And some of us, we live our lives in that worry and that fear. And he's saying, hey, listen, don't let somebody else judge you out of your faith. Don't let somebody else's expectation push you away from Jesus because all that you need is found there. And to the myriad of voices that are waiting to tell you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough or skinny enough, you're not strong enough, you're not man enough or woman enough, you're not good enough. To all the voices that are waiting to tell you that, God is the one who is saying, I love you. I have redeemed you. You're mine. You see, when he looks at us, he doesn't say you're not enough. He says, I'll supply what's lacking. He doesn't look at you and say, you're not good enough. He says, I will cover you in my goodness. There's something redemptive and beautiful here. Something that transforms us. So he continues in verse 18, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Now, this is an interesting thing. He's saying there will be people who claim to be spiritual and they say, you're not spiritual like me. You worship Jesus. I worship Jesus and the angels and the stars. And the sun and the moon and the grass and the trees and the birds, you're not nearly as spiritual as me. And Paul's like, those people aren't spiritual. Those people are puffed up believing their own notion of what they think is right. And they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. If you want to grow spiritually, stay connected to Jesus. It's not about adding other things. It's not like, man, if being a Christian gets me close to God, what if I was a Christian and a Buddhist and a Hindu and a, and a, and a Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Listen, you can't add to what Jesus has done. Verse 20, since you died with Christ, let me say that again, since you died with Christ, for those who missed it, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world? 
you submit to its rules. What's he talking about? He said to the church, you've died with Christ. Where have we seen that language already in this passage? What is he talking about? To the believer, to the follower of Christ, where do we die with Christ? In baptism. Yeah, that's exactly what he's referring to. That thing that was right in the middle of the chiasm? He's talking about, listen, if you've been baptized, you have died with Christ and been risen with him. This is an important spiritual thing. And listen, if you haven't been baptized, if you're saying, I follow Jesus, I just don't need to get baptized. Listen, if you're following Jesus, this is literally one of the very first things he says do. If you've never been baptized, I I want you to know that and experience that. And you're like, oh, you do that here? Yeah, we do that. That's like the thing. Like if you're like, oh, man, I was looking for a place and I was like, it's either a pool or the lake or the bed. I can do that at church. Yeah, you can do that at church. We want to help you with that process. And listen, if there's someone here and you say, I've never been baptized, I didn't know I needed to be baptized. Listen, talk to me. Write a little something on a connect card. You can pull it out now and say, hey, I need to be baptized. Will you talk to me about that? Will you help me understand it, explain it? Because there is a spiritual significance that you are not living in. Some people would say that it's purely symbolic. I want you to know that your salvation is attached to faith in Jesus, not to baptism. But that baptism is more than a symbol. There is a spiritual reality that takes place when we bend our knee to Jesus and follow him where he asks us to go. And I want you guys to know that. And he's speaking here since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why is though you still belong to the world? Do you submit to its rules? He's saying live differently. If you've died with Christ, live like it. You see, in the law, it would say, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There were certain things that they could not touch. This is a big deal, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but in the book of uh, Acts, there's a huge moment in in, uh, chapter 10, I believe, when Peter is like, no, 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 listen, hey, I'm following the law, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Jew, and I'm following the law. And and Jesus is like, hey, or, or God speaks to him in a vision and says, hey, get up and eat. And, and he sees this vision and all these different foods that he's not even supposed to handle or touch or be around. And it comes down and it, and it, and it covers everything. And he just sees all this. And God says, get up and eat. And he's kind of, he's caught up right in this whole thing of being Jewish. And he's like, God, no. He's literally like, God, you're wrong. God, I don't know if you know how this works, but the law says, he's like, tell me what the law says. I wrote the law. He's telling him, he says, hey, listen, don't call anything unclean that which I have made clean. What he's doing there is he's saying, listen, there was a way that I was trying to separate you. But when Jesus came, what he did was he took the Gentile and redeemed him. He says, there's no longer anything that separates. Why? Because Christ has covered it all. So no longer fear. Don't worry about living according to the law. The law was only there to help you realize you need Jesus And now everyone can come through him. Verse 22, these rules which we have to do with the things, sorry, these rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. So the things that are going on around this time that they're kind of holding on to, he's saying these are man's commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And otherwise, in other words, the idea that you would somehow cure your sin nature by willpower is ridiculous. There are going to be some of you who are going to try different diets, Atkin diets, keto diets, and you're going to look around and you're going to start telling everybody, like, you need to eat this way. It's the only responsible way. Or some people are going to become vegans or vegetarians. and You're going to say it's the only way. It's the only responsible way. And you, know, you might be right. I don't know. I don't know. But if you start telling people you can't go to heaven unless you're a vegetarian, you have lost your mind. That has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it might be responsible and it might make the world better, whatever. You know, I'm not saying that's bad. It's good. It's good. But if you start adding things to the gospel of Jesus and say, this is necessary. If you start looking at people and you said, hey, you should go to the gym more. That's fine. But if you look at them and you're like, you don't go to heaven if you don't work out three times a week. I'd be like, you have lost your mind. 
There are some people in history who honestly thought that to avoid pleasure in the flesh was to please God. And so there would be some people who say, are you having fun? Well, I guess you don't know Jesus. Are you having a good time? Listen, if you suffered a little bit more, maybe you would be closer to God. Let me tell you this suffering is going to come. You don't have to force it. You don't even have to pursue it. But the idea that if you're not suffering, somehow something is wrong is terribly misguided. God is not trying to give you a punishment here on earth that you should suffer as long and hard as you can so that when you get to heaven, it will be better by comparison. Heaven is good enough all by itself. But here's the thing. We are meant to live as though our old lives are forfeit. I want to end on this point. James Calvert, in 1838, he took a group of people, and they got on a boat headed towards Fiji. And they were going to this island to minister to a bunch of cannibals. That's people who eat people. Not recreationally. It's like all they do. I don't know why that matters, but that's the deal. And he's going, and the captain says, hey, listen, if you go, you are going to die, and everyone with you. And he said, well, we're going anyway. All of us who got on this boat, we've died already. He understood that he was dead to the flesh, and that meant he had to live his life differently for Christ. That man went to go on and minister in Fiji for the next 18 years. Today, Fiji is a place where Christianity is alive and well. Because of the works of people like this who said, you know what? I know that my life is already forfeit to Christ, and now I have to live like Jesus is real. I have to live differently. And so there's some of us here today that need to hear this. Listen, if you're following Jesus, you need to understand you're dead already. Your life is already forfeit. It's already given up. This thing, everything that this world competes for, all the things that they want to gain, everything that is simply momentary. If you say, you know, I'm going to get as much money as I can. That's not what we live for. If you're saying, I, you know, I just want to have as much pleasure as I can. That's not what we live for. If you're saying, I just want to know peace. You know what? If I can just carve out a little space for myself where I know everything will be okay. That's not what we live for. You know, the kingdom of God is quickly moving into dark places. The purpose of the church is to be something that helps us grow up and get rooted in Jesus. And then to go actively, intentionally, missionally into the dark places throughout the earth. Bringing the glory of Jesus with us. This is your purpose. This is why you were created. This is what you've been saved into. This is why Jesus died. To redeem you into something that is bigger than just you getting out of hell, just you getting out of punishment. If you ever felt like that message was too narrow, too small, you were right. Because it's not about avoiding pain. It's about drawing near to Jesus and joining him in his work of redemption. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I'd like to ask you to stand. And listen, if you've never offered up your life to Jesus and you can't remember, I don't even know when I was saved or if I'm saved at all. Why not take advantage of this situation now and say, this is the time that I'm going to bend my knee to Jesus. This is the time that I'm going to turn my life over to him. And if you feel like I'm too far away I'm too separated. Let me know in this place and in this moment, God is drawing near to you. There is nothing that you can confess that won't be forgiven. First John 1, 9, it tells us, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm clinging to that promise. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray like this missionary that we would be those who proclaim, but we have died already. God, that we would live with an urgency to proclaim the life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would be those who do not add to the gospel, telling people you have to know the gospel and then do this. You have to understand the gospel and be this. Rather, that we would be those who would devote ourselves to the word of God, that we would clearly grasp the grace of Jesus, that we would understand that though we are sinners, we are those who have been bought and paid for. That we are those who are welcomed, in fact, ushered into the kingdom of God. And we are called family.
God, there is a world that is broken and hurting and dark out there that needs to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And there is not a single one of us, not a single one who knows Jesus that hasn't been sent to that mission. And so, Jesus, in this place here today, we accept. We accept the sending. We accept the invitation to join you in your mission. Second Corinthians chapter 5 stuff. The stuff where we understand that our role is to join you in the ministry and the sharing of the message of reconciliation. That we would be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That we would carry you wherever we go. And so we say yes to that. Lord, may the kingdom of God be known because we lived it faithfully. May it be known in the circle of our friends who do not know you because we, we proclaim Jesus, not through our goodness, but through your grace. In our workplaces and our families, Lord, I know I've got family that doesn't know you. Help me be faithful there. I pray that you would open up our mouths and open up our lives and we would begin to live radically for Jesus. But all of that has to start with a moment. So I pray, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone in this place who's never said yes to you, never said, Jesus, be my Lord, never said, Jesus, lead my life, that today would be the day that they can remember, January 26, 2020, that they said, Jesus, be my Lord. I believe that you're the son of the living God, that you came bodily to earth, that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. Jesus, I want to live my life to serve you. And wherever you'll lead me, Jesus, I'll go. And whatever you want me to do, Jesus, I'll do that. I am yours. I am yours. So, Jesus, I just pray over these people here in this place, those who came in perhaps far away, Lord, that they would be drawn near to you here, and that your love would surround them. In the name of Jesus, we pray.